So Thursday was St. Patrick's Day. I'm sure you all were celebrating in good Anglican fashion. Bravo. I posted a word on my Facebook page Thursday, uh, a word of thanks, because it was the fourth anniversary of my having suffered a sudden heart attack in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I had just given a talk at a church planters conference and sat down, having gotten a thumbs up from the archbishop, I was feeling kind of good, and then all of a sudden I felt radiating pain shooting into my shoulders. And I'd seen other guys go through that enough. I knew it wasn't uh, just a cough or a muscle spasm. So I flagged somebody down and was off to the hospital. Three days later, triple bypass surgery and an extra two weeks in beautiful Dallas. My daughter-in-law posted a prayer of thanksgiving on St. Patrick's Day, and so I responded with my gratitude to all the people, uh, my best friends from Dallas who uh, gathered uh, while I lay in, a, in an examining room getting enzyme tests. These guys all peeked through the door. It was kind of like that scene at the end of The Wizard of Oz when the farm guys all look in on Dorothy, and um, they were cutting, cracking jokes. Meanwhile, I'm wondering if I'm going to live or die. But all went well. God be praised. That same day, after I had posted my word of gratitude to my daughter-in-law and everybody else who rallied around me and and, uh, prayed for me, uh, my son texted me this prayer. Many of you know the prayer. It's from an ancient prayer called St. Patrick's Breastplate, a portion of which is Christ beside me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. And I replied when my son's post came through, that's been one of my favorites for years. It used to be on my desk in St. Louis, and he posted back, I know, I asked you about it when I saw it there years ago. And that's what I was thinking about Thursday. He said, I read what you posted, and it made me cry. One of my favorite verses is Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's what Nancy and I have missed the last three and a half years. I'm not going to stay personal for much longer, but um, on this first Sunday when I'm really a part of you, not yet with Nancy at my side, I want to tell you that's what we've missed most. Uh, I love the other part of my job, the 70% of my job that is working alongside Bishop Steve Breedlove. I love moving around the region. I love working with next-generation leaders. I I love pouring into them. I love shaping their reading and their study to become young priests. I love all of that. Uh, But what I've missed most is that with all that tripping around constantly in airports and in a car on some highway somewhere, I've missed this. I'm always in church on Sunday. It's just not usually the same church two Sundays in a row. And I'm sure there must be people there who pray for me. I know that. Uh, Occasionally, maybe they rejoice with me. Uh, Lots of times when I preach a clunker of a sermon, they probably weep. (laughs) 
But for three plus years, Nancy and I have not had the joy and the privilege of being part, a part of a family of faith, a community where we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You may be here for lots of reasons, but I hope that's one of them. That if you don't already, you will come to treasure what it is to be in a community of people who shed tears for one another. Here we are at the threshold of Holy Week, and if you pay attention, you're going you're to hear lots of mention of tears along the way. And so we're going to talk about those tears just a little bit this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that we belong to you, that you gave your life for us, that you died and rose again, that we might have eternal life, and that before we taste that eternal life in fullness and in glory, we have this intermittent joy of being with one another in the church, in a community of brothers and sisters who rejoice and weep together. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, if we had just read a few more verses after the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, we would have read these few verses in Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And when he drew near and saw the city... Jesus wept. It's Jesus' turn to cry at the beginning of Holy Week. There have been plenty of tears already in Luke's gospel. Um, We haven't been going exactly sequentially, so we haven't hit all of these weeping moments quite yet, but some of you will remember the weeping widow at Nain, weeping for her dead son, or Jairus' family weeping over the daughter. Along the way, there have been others in distress, in distress coming to Jesus for healing, for a new life, weeping, begging. In a moment, I'll draw our attention to a scene that we'll hear again when we come to Good Friday and read the sweeping story of the passion of Jesus. We'll, we'll encounter the women of Jerusalem wailing and weeping at what is unfolding before them. But not even Jesus is immune to tears. Let me say that again. Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Lord of the universe, is not immune to tears. There were, sadly, some in the early church who staggered at the statement that Jesus wept. They thought that it dishonored the Lord. And so there were even some in the early Christian community who... uh, in Thomas Jefferson-like style, clipped it out, excised it, refused to teach it, didn't believe it. 
But I think it's a great and powerful proclamation of good news that Jesus, even the Lord Jesus, was not immune to tears. We can think right off the top of our heads three instances that the gospel mentions. Uh, the shortest, sharpest, most moving sentence in Scripture is argu- arguably from John 11, when Jesus stands at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And the sentence is simply, Jesus wept. He wept. We'll hear later in the week how he went to a garden. I stood in that garden. I prayed in that garden. I teared up in that garden called Gethsemane last summer with a group from the States. And in that garden, you know that Jesus' tears were so fervent, so passionate, accompanied with blood, bloody sweat as he anticipated what was about to befall him. And now today, in Luke 19, we see Jesus weeping over the city, and there's no one to console him. This week, let me invite you, as you reflect on Jesus' way to the cross, don't forget the tears. Because of the tears of a God of love. He who knows us at our worst continues to love us and weeps for us. It's not only about the suffering to come that he weeps, but he weeps because of the people's unwillingness to embrace his kingdom message of peace. There have been warnings of impending judgment on the city and on the temple already. We've heard them again and again. And they've not just come from the mouth of Jesus. Those same warnings have come from all the prophets of Israel. And all along, God's people had resisted the call for peace. They'd set their own interests and agendas before those of God who had established them in this city. And now Jesus stands looking out over this beautiful, this stunningly beautiful city, and he weeps. Unless you repent, he said, you will all likewise perish. It's an essential part of Jesus' message of warning and judgment. Jesus' tears are the core of the Christian gospel, I would suggest. Uttered through sobs and tears from a heart of love are words of promise and hope. Jesus' tears signal that he wants the best for and from God's people. But he says he weeps because you didn't know the moment when God was visiting you. It's a stunning sentence. I'm not sure I've ever really paid enough attention to that sentence until this week. Jesus weeps, he says, because you didn't know the moment when God was visiting you. Literally, it says, the day of your visitation. Well, we, we know that, um, we know that uh, day of visitation because it's mentioned in the very first chapter of Luke, Luke's gospel, even before Jesus is on the scene. Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesies, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people. He has visited, same word, he has visited his people and redeemed them, brought them freedom, set them free. God has visited his people. 
And then he goes on. This is at the circumcision of his son, John the, John the Baptist. You, child, will be called the prophet of the highest one, preparing his way, letting his people know of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. His daylight has dawned, bringing light into darkness, guiding our feet into the way of peace. Those words are so critical that the church, going back to ancient times, has sung them every morning at matins or morning prayer. They're still embedded in the Book of Common Prayer that we Anglicans treasure to be sung every day or said as a response to one of the readings at morning prayer. God has visited his people and set us free. Jesus knew because he was that God now in the flesh visiting his people. God come back to see how his people were doing with the centuries-old commission to be God's people for the sake of the nations. Now, come Friday, we're going to hear a different story. And in the midst of that story, the story that climaxes in the crucifixion, we're going to encounter another Uh, another section of the story where now a group of women are standing in that same city, Jerusalem. A great crowd of the people followed Jesus, Luke writes, including women who were mourning and wailing for him. And Jesus turned and spoke to them. Daughters of Jerusalem, he said, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves instead. Cry for your children. In other words, Jesus invites them to weep the same tears that he had wept as he stood watching the city below. Well, why shouldn't they cry? Was there no cause for grief as Jesus made his way to the cross? Of course. But nonetheless, Jesus says, even though it's not wrong for you to cry, I mean, think about it. Jesus was suffering, Jesus was friendless, Jesus was about to die. And they see all of that. It's not wrong for them to grieve and shed tears. But Jesus says, nonetheless, weep for yourselves. More necessary than weeping for me is that you weep for yourselves. Because Jesus sees the impending doom of those who have insulted him. He sees with his prophetic wisdom a besieged and captured Jerusalem not many decades after he shed those tears, that prophecy would be fulfilled and the walls would come tumbling down and the temple destroyed. Jesus saw the young and old being murdered in his mind's eye. He saw the coming day of judgment and he said, weep for yourselves. The women's tears were not wrong. They were even hopeful tears, in a sense, because they signaled tender hearts. But there's no proof. It's no proof of a work of the Spirit that you weep as you hear the story of Jesus' death. Some of you may just be caught up in the emotion of the story this week, and that's fine. But Jesus says, weep not for me, weep for yourselves. Weep because your sins made it necessary for him to die.
Weep not over the crucified one, but over your transgressions that nailed him to the cursed tree. Pay attention to some of the songs we'll sing this week. I don't even know from Don yet what we're singing, but I'm guessing we may sing Were You There? Why do you sing that? Because you were. Because your sins put him there. I grew up singing an old German Good Friday hymn as a child, and it always stunned me when I had to sing with the whole congregation, I crucified him. My sins nailed him to the cross. So Jesus says, don't weep for me. In other words, don't lament the remedy. It's wiser to bewail the disease. So weep for yourselves. It's better to, not to weep over a dying Savior. That's like, that's like wetting the surgeon's knife with your tears, Charles Spurgeon once said. It's better to weep for the polyp that the knife will cut away. Your sin. So sing with joy because of his victory over death and the grave. I don't know if you've uh, discovered the poetry of Malcolm Geit. Uh, Malcolm Geit is a uh, singer-songwriter and an Anglican priest, a college chaplain in Cambridge. Uh, you, can, you can Google him, G-U-I-T-E, Malcolm Geit, his, uh, his sonnets, and that's the, that's the usual form in which he writes poetry. His sonnets are stunning. He's written an entire collection that tracks the entire church year calendar. Um, he posts them. If better than reading them is to click the little button that allows you to listen to him. Listen to this poem by Malcolm Guide. It's called Jesus Weeps, which he wrote for Palm Sunday. Jesus comes near, and he beholds the city and looks on us with tears in his eyes. And wells of mercy, streams of love and pity flow from the fountain whence all things arise. He loved us into life and longs to gather and meet with his beloved face to face. How often has he called a careful mother and wept for our refusals of his grace. Wept for a world that weary with its weeping, benumbed and stumbling, turns the other way. Fatigued compassion is already sleeping whilst her worst nightmares stalk the light of day. But we might waken yet and face those fears if we could see ourselves through Jesus' tears. Weep not for me, but weep for all the times you've refused his grace. And then weep for a world that, weary with its weeping, benumbed and stumbling, turns the other way. That's the world for which Jesus wept. It's hard to see through tears. But sometimes it's the only way to see. 
tears can be the turning point, the, the springs of renewal. And to know that you have been wept for is to know that you are loved. To know you have been wept for is to know that you are loved. That's what I've longed for. To be wept for. Not merely patted on the back or celebrated or thanked. Not merely handed platitudes and hollow consolations. You and I don't know we're truly loved until we've been wept for. And how good it is that between all the times when we are bereft of others' tears, we can know nonetheless that Jesus has wept and weeps still for us. You and I can say unabashedly, we have a God who weeps for us. We have a God who weeps with us. We have a God who understands to the depths and from the inside the tears of things. We have a God who calls us to bewail our sin and to weep for others. There's a little prayer, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. In other words, let me shed the same tears that Jesus weeps. When you pray that prayer, that your heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God, it's a, it's a cry to God for mercy. First of all, for yourselves. St. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians about shedding, about godly sorrow and shedding holy tears. And those holy tears are meant to bring you to your knees in confession of your sin and your great need for forgiveness. And that's why we treasure this, this precious gift that the ancient church has bequeathed to us called confession and absolution. Even at the height of the Reformation, when uh, reformers like Luther and Calvin and Cranmer were, were eager to um, distance themselves from the abusive and heretical practices of the church that they had come to know, they nonetheless never did away with the practice of confession and absolution. And so they summoned parishioners, they summoned their friends and colleagues to come regularly to confess their sins, to weep over their sinfulness, and to seek another who would announce to them the free gift of God's grace and forgiveness and mercy. Weep for yourselves, and in your weeping, seek out a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ and confess your sins one to another. And hear from outside you, because the word of assurance doesn't well up from within. Hear another speak from outside you. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And weep for others. In essence, we do that every Sunday in worship. We weep for others by interceding for them. We call them to mind. We, we name their names. We name all the places in the world where people are broken and hurting where peace has been shredded. And again, in fervent intercession, we, we weep tears for others. And we weep for our world. Jesus said, seek the things that make for peace. 
and on our knees is the first place we do that seeking. But we don't stay on our knees because even as we pray, we seek ways to live out that peace. In his grace, God will reach out with his healing love, not only comforting us, but also using us to comfort others and to extend the peace of his kingdom in real, practicable, and tangible ways. So I ask you, here at the threshold of Holy Week, what things in this world break your heart? And what difference does that make in the way you pray? What difference does it make in the way you live? If you haven't shed tears for anyone or anything in a broken world, maybe your prayer this week is, let my heart be broken, Lord, by the things that break the heart of God. The message of Holy Week is this. Israel's God is coming back to his people to explain what was going on when he himself was arriving in Jerusalem. God is coming in person, and he finds his temple turned into a symbol of Israel's failure to be his people. And so on that Palm Sunday, he cleans out the temple. Luke is telling us the story of how Israel's God came back to his people in judgment and mercy, came back to a people who had another idea. And he weeps. He who knows us at our worst continues to love us. He doesn't reject us. He intercedes for us. Please pray with me.